This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... The Kingfisher oil field is estimated to have a total of 560 million barrels of oil in place. Out of this, 190 million barrels of oil is expected to be produced over a period of 20 to 25 years. That's the head of Uganda's Petroleum Authority, Anes Sorondo, talking about the $10 billion project to develop Uganda's oil reserve. Details coming up also. Tanzanian opposition leader Tundu Lisu arrived in Tanzania today for a warm welcome by supporters. And South Africans are in the streets today to protest against constant electricity outages. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. But first, our top story, U.S. Secretary Janet, U.S. Secretary Janet Yellen is in South Africa in a work, three-day working visit. The visit is a fulfillment of promises made by President Joe Biden at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit held in Washington, where he pledged to deepen ties with Africa, including making sure that representatives of his administration physically visit the continent. In Johannesburg, reporter Tuso Kumalo is closely monitoring Secretary Yellen's visit to South Africa, and he's standing by to update us on developments. Welcome to African News Tonight, Tuso. Welcome. Thank you so much. So, what's the latest you have for us regarding the U.S. Treasury Secretary's visit? Today, on day two, she visited uh, the Dino King uh, game reserve just 60 uh, kilometers out of Pretoria, the north of Pretoria, the capital of South Africa. And uh, she she went around and uh, it gave a feel of how to see these wildlife animals in their natural habitat. And after that, she briefed the media. The media and uh, in, the meet- in the meeting with the media, she emphasized that uh, the U.S. is committed in fighting wildlife uh, trafficking as well as uh, poaching. You know South Africa is experiencing quite a lot of uh, poaching, especially with the rhino poaching. And she, she's saying uh, together with South Africa, they formed a task force uh, that is going to be looking into sharing information about uh, uh, the, the poachers and the traffickers of, of wildlife, as well as uh, uh, tracking the finances really uh, that are coming out of that and fueling uh, this illegal industry. Of, of course, also she said uh, this entity is going to help also in strengthening uh, the mechanisms within the countries so that uh, uh, poaching is, uh, is stopped even before it happened. So uh, today it was uh, a U.S. Uh, uh, giving a hand to South Africa to say uh, this is what we can do in terms of fighting poaching, not only in South Africa, but globally as well. So she has she met any South African official? After that meeting, she is scheduled to meet uh, President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, but uh, this is a closed meeting. The media uh, not allowed there, but we know the issues uh, that are there, uh, the issues of uh, strengthening economic relations, expanding trade, which is very, very key at the moment uh, for South Africa. Uh, the indication earlier was uh, in, in her artillery, it wasn't in the program that she's going to meet Ramaphosa, but today getting confirmation that uh, uh, that meeting will take place so that 
Center, at least there is Ramaphosa endorsing South Africa's stance and welcoming hand to U.S. plans to invest and expand trade in South Africa. Uh, South Africa's closeness uh, with Russia, especially regarding the uh, Ukraine crisis, uh, do you think, uh, can we anticipate a major change in U.S. trade policy for South Africa? Currently, that's unlikely because what we saw is that after the Russian minister visited here, uh, the South African government, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in South Africa, was full of praise of their relations, the discussions, even rejecting uh, questions, uh, questioning that was saying, why is South Africa hosting uh, military drills for, for Russia and China, saying uh, no one should tell South Africa what to do. South Africa is a sovereign state and has to do things according to what it thinks. So both of them have been very much welcome. Uh, uh, Secretary Yellen welcome in all the areas that she's going and has indicated meeting uh, with the President Ramaphosa. And of course, the, 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 the Russian ambassador also, the Russian minister also very much welcome. So it seems South Africa uh, is, is treating them as, as people that are coming to invest and for it, that's enough, not getting into the politics and differences between the U.S. and Russia on the issue in Ukraine. To Sokumalo from Johannesburg, closely monitoring Secretary Yellen's visit to South Africa. Uh, thank you for your input, Tuso. Thanks so much. Tanzanian opposition leader Tundulisu arrived in Tanzania today to a warm welcome by supporters at the Julius Nerere International Airport before making his way to address a rally in commercial capital Dar es Salaam. Lisu, who is the vice chairman of the Chadema opposition political party, has been a fierce critic of the government. In 2017, he was shot 16 times by unknown gunmen who left him for dead. VOA's Esther Gitu Award spoke with Lisu via Skype before he boarded an airplane from Belgium where he had lived in exile. Lisu said he is pleased with Tanzania's president, Samia Sululu's uh, lifting of a ban to allow opposition politicians to gather and engage in politics. He said he will push for constitutional reforms to allow democracy in Tanzania to thrive. Well, uh, President Samia's recent lifting of the illegal ban on political activity for the opposition means that we in the political opposition can now do what the law has always allowed us to do, and that is carry out political rallies, meetings, demonstrations in accordance with Tanzanian law. What the president did was actually to lift an illegal ban. We have, we cannot, we cannot, we must underline that. Take us back uh, to your own personal story, your personal political tribulations that had you maimed and perhaps left for dead and how you moved on from there. Well, as, as you may remember, on September 7th of 2017, in the afternoon, I was attacked outside my uh, parliamentary apartment in Dodoma, Tanzania, by people who have never been identified to date. And I was hit 16 times and left for, for, for dead, as you, as, you, as you put it. Uh, but uh, God is great. I was rushed to hospital, and thereafter I was rushed to Kenya 
where I was in hospital for four months, and eventually I came to Belgium where I spent 11 months in hospital and 24, 25 surgeries in, in total. Now, talk to us about how your life has been, I would say, in exile in Belgium. I woke up one fine morning, went to my office. I never returned home. And uh, I have not been able to return home ever since that, that fateful day, uh, with the exception of the, the three months that I spent campaigning for the presidency in 2020. These have been some of the most difficult periods of my, of my life, um, separated from my family, separated from the people I love, separated from my, the country that I have loved, that I call home. Uh, that I, you know, I, I, I vowed to, to, to serve. So, so these five years have been very, very difficult. Are you confident that you can now return to active politics? Well, I, I never left political scene. I, I may have been out of the country, but I was never out of the country's politics. Uh, as you may remember, I returned in 2020 to face uh, John Pombe Magufuli in the presidential race. Um, uh, and what happened, happened, but uh, I never left politics. So what were your reflections when you saw the Tanzanian opposition political parties meeting this past Saturday? Uh, I, I must say I was not entirely surprised uh, by the, the high turnout. I wasn't entirely surprised by the massive um, and emotional uh, uh, you know, reconnection with the people and their leaders. Mr. Lisu, if you do get a chance for a one-on-one -on -one meeting with President Samia Suluhu Hassan, what will your discussions be like? I will tell her exactly what I told her on the 17th of February last year when I met her in Brussels, that the country needs a new constitution, a new democratic and a constitution that will create and a, a government accountable to the people and to representative institutions of the people. We need freedom, justice, and people-centered development. And that was Tanzanian opposition leader Tundu Lisu. He spoke via Skype with my colleague Esther Gitu Award yesterday before he arrived in Tanzania. For more on Lisu's return to his country, check out voaafrica.com. A new report on African governance says Africa is less safe and democratic than 10 years ago. The study by the Mo Ibrahim Foundation attributes that to over 23 successful and attempted coups since 2012. Eight have been successful, including two each in Mali and Burkina Faso, both of which are also fighting an Islamic insurgency. The report also says that nearly 70% of all Africans in more than 30 countries saw a decline in security and rule of law, including South Sudan. Sudan, Somalia, Eritrea, Cameroon, Central African Republic, as well as Burundi. Many of the nations in the index have introduced emergency measures and a clampdown on civil society. The report notes that African nations are influenced by the global growth of authoritarianism in countries such as Turkey, China, Russia, and Hungary. Mo Ibrahim 
a British billionaire born in Sudan, committed to democracy, said Africa is not responsible for some of the issues exacerbating its governance issues, like climate change or food shortages from the war in Ukraine, but he said the continent is responsible for bad governance. The index does not improve, does note improvements in some areas, including economic growth, improved infrastructure, education, and gender equity. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Drilling. For Uganda's first commercial oil well began this week as part of a $10 billion project to develop Uganda's oil fields and a controversial pipeline to Tanzania's coast. Authorities say they have addressed concerns about the oil project's effects on the environment and displacing people. However, critics say the dangers are being ignored. Halima Tumani reports from Kampala, Uganda. Uganda began its oil production journey by switching on a drilling rig Tuesday at the Kingfisher oil field in southwest Chikube district. The oil field, run by the state-owned China National Offshore Oil Corporation, Sinuk, has cost about $2 billion, part of a $10 billion project to develop Uganda's oil reserves and build a pipeline to Tanzania. The head of the Petroleum Authority of Uganda, Ernest Ribondo, says they will drill 31 wells at the Kingfisher oil field, up to 10 of them before production starts in two years. The Kingfisher oil field is estimated to have a total of 560 million barrels of oil in place. Out of this, 190 million barrels of oil is expected to be produced over a period of 20 to 25 years. This oil field is expected to have a maximum production of 40,000 barrels of oil per day for five years. Uganda's Tilenga oil field, run by France's Total Energies, is expected to eventually produce an additional 190,000 barrels per day. Uganda is also starting this year on a 1,400-kilometer-long pipeline to the Tanzanian port of Tanga from where the oil will be shipped to international markets. Authorities are calling the East African crude oil pipeline the world's longest heated pipeline, which critics say has displaced villages and threatens the environment. The Kingfisher oil field extends from the shores of Lake Albert three kilometers into the lake. Activists fear oil could be spilled into the lake or nearby villages and question how west from the project will be managed. Dickens Kamgisha is director of the Africa Institute for Energy Governance, Afiego, a Uganda-based advocacy group. He spoke to VOA by phone. We have around 70 cases challenging the environmental impact assessment and the government of President Museveni has ignored to assure that the justice system works and hear and conclude those cases. So the best we can do is to inform Ugandans that these projects are risky, they will affect your agriculture, they will affect your fisheries, they will affect your tourism, they will affect your lives. Ugandan officials say displaced villagers were compensated and insist they took strict measures to protect the environment. Ruth Nankabirwa is Uganda's Minister for Energy and Mineral Development. We have made sure that we leave no stone unturned on all the international requirements because we know that not everybody wishes Uganda well 
that not everybody wishes Africa well. So we are going to drill knowing that we have taken care of environmental, health and safety issues. Uganda estimates it has 6.5 billion barrels of crude oil under the lake, but only 1.4 billion are believed recoverable. Halima Athmani, VA News, Kampala, Uganda. Thousands of South Africans are in the streets today to protest against constant electricity outages that are causing hardship, death, and economic destruction. The latest round of blackouts, known as load shedding in the country, began in July last year and lasted up to 12 hours a day. To add to to citizens' outrage, the government recently approved an electricity price increase of almost 20%. Darren Taylor reports. Demonstrators march on African National Congress headquarters, Lutuli House in central Johannesburg, singing Down with the ANC. The protesters are directing their fury at the governing party, which they blame for the electricity crisis. Christine Nkosi says her household will no longer give the state money for a service she doesn't have. So we're no longer paying for electricity. So if we all don't stand up, show some kind of resistance, we're going to continue having the problems that we have. For some people, this is a life-threatening thing. They are patients who are oxygen-dependent. People survive on their livelihoods. The president can't make jobs. He's telling us that the private sector should create jobs. In the same time, he's instituting load shedding and facilitating the looting of resources because if he's doing nothing, and he's telling us that he's shocked, that his hands are tied. Tied by whom? President Cyril Ramaphosa promised to end the power outages when he replaced Jacob Zuma in 2018. Instead, they've gotten worse. A commission of inquiry has found that Zuma, with the knowledge of the ANC, appointed allies who then looted state electricity company ESCOM. They failed to maintain coal-driven power stations, causing daily equipment breakdowns. The commission also said projects to build two new power plants called Madupi and Kusile were racked with corruption. Energy experts say both stations are poorly constructed and are mostly dysfunctional. ANC leaders did not address the protesters on Wednesday. They instructed party youth league members, some armed with whips and wooden clubs, to protect Lutuli House. Youth League spokesperson Tandi Muraka said ESCOM's to blame for the blackouts, not the ANC. We are going to come here and defend, not because we want to encourage violence. We are not going to encourage black-on-black violence, but there's no ANC leader who's going to come out and take any memorandum from them. They must take their memorandum to ESCOM. We all agree that this country is collapsing to the ground. And as the ANC, we must take that responsibility. But this is a political party headquarters. It's not a government department. No political party can... But Democratic Alliance leader John Stiernazen told a crowd near Lutuli House the ANC is the root of the problem. You only need to look at this house behind us. That is ground zero of the crisis in South Africa. That is ground zero of the corruption crisis in South Africa. Because it is in that criminal house where the tenders were dished out for Madupi and Kusile. 
It's where the Hitachi deal was hatched, where the ANC made millions and millions of rand on your expense. Not money for Eskom. Not money for Eskom. <laughs> Ramaphosa has said green energy is the way forward. Yet his energy minister says the solution to the electricity crisis is to revamp coal-fired power stations. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The head of the International Monetary Fund is praising Zambia's efforts to reform its economy and urging its creditors to restructure the country's debts. Zambia was the first African country to default on its sovereign debt in the COVID era. Economists say prompt debt restructuring is needed to restart Zambia's stagnant economy. Cathy Short reports from Lusaka, Zambia. Speaking at the University of Zambia Tuesday, IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva applauded Lusaka's efforts to reform its economy, saying it had done its part and urging its creditors to do theirs. She said the IMF had reached an understanding in principle with China to restructure almost six billion U.S. dollars Zambia owes Beijing, one of its main creditors. The IMF chief acknowledged global disruptions that shook Zambia's economy. Over the last years, we have experienced two unthinkable events. First, COVID, that brought the world economy to a standstill for a prolonged period of time. Second, the invasion by Russia of Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February last year disrupted food, energy and other markets as Western governments hit Moscow with sanctions and Russia's navy stopped Ukraine's grain exports. Zambia defaulted on its debt in November 2020, the first African country to do so after the COVID pandemic. But Lusaka's debt problem predates the pandemic. The government under former president Edgar Lungu from 2015 more than doubled Zambia's debt as a percentage of GDP according to World Bank collected data. An IMF study released this month says corruption flourished under Lungu's government which his former ruling party rejects. Current president Hagainde Hichilema who was elected in 2021 pledged to tackle corruption and secured 1.3 billion US dollars in IMF support for Zambia's debt with reform that cut wasteful spending. Civil Society Debt Alliance economist Boyd Muleya says creditors' delay in negotiating Zambia's debt is slowing its economic recovery. So the challenge that Zambia faces today mostly is uh, the protracted nature of the debt restructuring process that we have seen and the challenge uh, that further, you know, augments this conversation is the fact that there are no timelines that are set and so it creates a lot of uncertainty in terms of economic planning going forward. IMF Director Jojiva met late Monday with President Hichilema and vowed to help resolve the impasse with creditors. The Economics Association of Zambia's Trevor Simumba says reaching a final deal on Zambia's debt would also help the IMF reverse negative views in Africa on its strict policies. As you are aware, the economy is stagnant. It's not growing at the pace that it's required to grow in order to deal with the structural problems. Simply by using the textbook theories of the IMF in terms of the usual, oh, we need to rein in inflation, we need to 
make sure that uh, the exchange rate is stable, doesn't depreciate. You know, these things in reality do not work. Zambia says its foreign debt hit 17 billion U.S. dollars last June as prices for copper, one of its key exports, crashed. Zambia is Africa's largest producer of the valuable metal after the Democratic Republic of Congo. Kathy Short for VOA News, Lusaka, Zambia. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Cedric Franklin, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.